Well, please uh, take your Bibles and open to the book of John, John chapter 9. And it's our great joy to continue in this magnificent study of Jesus' compassion and sovereignty in healing a blind man who was designated uh, from prior to his birth to be blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. We wanted you to see God's design to display his works in a blind man for his own glory. This was God's design that his glory would be on display. In verse 3, Jesus says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And just that very theological reality given to us in narrative form should produce a lot of encouragement for you. It should stir your thoughts with regard to the character of God. The charismatic movement has done so much damage in so many ways to Christendom, and uh, one of the ways in which it has done so much damage is the idea that Satan is actually sovereign and not God. And they might not actually say it that way, but anytime anything goes wrong, Satan automatically gets the blame. And some of you are nodding your heads because you've been there. You, you lived that life in the charismatic world for a time, and the result was just utter fear. You were constantly under the impression that while God was your friend, he really couldn't do anything to thwart Satan's power, not ultimately because anything that went wrong was not only Satan's fault, it was a result of Satan's dominion, a complete misunderstanding of the idea that he is the dominant one of this world, that he is the prince of the power of the air. Is he powerful? Yes. Is he intelligent? Yes. Far more than you or I. But he does not do anything that God has not planned from eternity past. Therefore, we can trust him. Now, here's what happens at this point. There's a fork in the road. And the person who does not like that doctrinal reality dismisses it and continues to live in fear. The person who subjects himself to the truth of God's word enjoys the reality that he trusts a God who is actually in control, not just partially in control, not just somehow got the ball rolling on things but didn't know what would happen. This is how you end up with a non-sovereign God. This is how you end up with the ability to dismiss what God has said about himself. So again, as you read this passage, if you were doing the study guide or just in your quiet time or you're trying to stay on top of what we're doing on Sunday mornings, you get to this passage and the light comes on. And you say, I get it. God did this because he's God. And that immediately brings you to your knees if you're reading with a submissive, humble spirit. It immediately produces encouragement to stop trying to outsmart God, to stop trying to defend him, to stop trying to apologize for what he said about himself. What does that result in? That results in conformity to the image of Christ. And so again, you have this fork in the road where the one who submits himself to the word of God begins to reveal a humble spirit, a commitment to Christ, a commitment to the church, a commitment to service, a commitment to holiness. And the one who rejects the word of God rejects the word of God. So he not only rejects what God has said about himself, he rejects what God has said to men about what they must do to be conformed to the image of Christ. So they blame their lack of sanctification on anybody and everybody. Why? 
they reject the Word of God. They don't just reject what God has said about himself. They reject every doctrine. It becomes easy to do that once you get on that slippery slope. So what must you and I do? We must be moved by this reality that it's God's design to display his works in a blind man for his glory. God not only decreed it, he caused it. Look with me for a moment at Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's remarkably helpful as Moses gets to the close of the Pentateuch and he attempts to kind of round everything out so that those who are actually listening will hear and understand that because God has secretly determined all things does not mean that he has not required of man a moral will. Very carefully succinctly and helpfully explains this to us in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Stop there. There's a sense in which he's saying, you know, the things that are none of your business, it's okay. You don't have to understand everything that I secretly know. And by the way, you won't in heaven. It's a bizarre thing that people have taught that somehow the minute you step into heaven, you will understand everything that God understands. That would make you God. You will always be enamored by, stand in adoration of, be immeasurably moved by the otherness of God. But the person who wants to force God down into his own human funnel, requiring God to fit his own worldview that's not a biblical worldview, rejects this truth. He rejects the idea that there are secret things that belong only to the Lord. You ought to be grateful for that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the adversative goes on then into this other reality of God's will that he reveals to us. There are things he does not reveal to us, and yet they are under his sovereign decree. And then there is that which he has revealed to us, and that is what you ought to give your attention to. So we do, right? That's our focus. That's what we would set our minds upon in terms of responding to what God has required of us. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. One of the things that has been revealed to us specifically, is that God destined this man to be blind that his works would be displayed in him. Don't try to get over that. Be moved by that. Be awe drunk with that. That God does what pleases him. Psalm 115 verse 3 says. God does what pleases him. A person who systematically and strategically rejects this and that and whatever else that he doesn't like simply doesn't like the reality that God does what pleases himself. He wants God to do what pleases him. Under that point, God's designed to display his works in a blind man. We see in verse 7, so he went and washed and came back seeing. He obeyed the Lord. He did exactly, precisely, just as Noah did in the building of the ark in all the detail, all the intricate detail. This man followed precisely what the Son of Man told him to do, and the result was that he came back 
experiencing the blessing of having been given sight. It's the way obedience works. God blesses obedience. You say, well, that doesn't sound like sovereignty to me. Well, that's because you're looking at sovereignty strictly and exclusively through your own human microscope rather than letting God be who he is and who he has said he is. Well, the second point in that message from John 9, 1 through 7, I wanted you to see God's design to display his works in us for his own glory. And this is that other place in that fork in the road that I talked to you about. The person who rejects what God says about himself rejects what God commands of him. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus was saying to the disciples, get busy. Your life is not about vacation and a bigger house. Your life is about seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. Trusting him that ultimately at the end of your life you would look back and say, I endeavored to be faithful along the way, and I surrounded myself with people who endeavored to be faithful along the way, and I locked arms with them, and I humbled myself, and I failed, but we were faithful. And therefore, God, who does not fail and who is perfectly faithful, used us. And our sights were set on the eternal. Night is coming. So we're to work, not just to work for the sake of work. And this is what results in burnout. You've heard people say that before. You know, what happened to so-and-so? Oh, he just got burned out. He just did too much. He was, you know, the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. That does not define our church. I love the article that I read many years ago about Grace Community Church called The Church with 900 Ministers. The LA Times uh, did an article on Grace Church and that this is a people who really broke the common mold of the day, the 2080 rule. How many people were in the church? 900. So for the most part, those people understood their role was not just to show up and listen to the teaching and bag on the teaching on the way home in the car, but they were there to listen and learn and grow and to collectively work together. And that is Grace Community Church. You've been to a Shepherds Conference, you've been to the Truth for Life Conference, you've been to, to their church for whatever reason. You know, we've driven there, many of us, and subjected ourselves to their leadership and their training. And the people are about service. It's an amazing experience. But let me tell you, that describes the Anchor Bible Church. When there are needs, the body steps up and says, these needs were designed by God, whatever they are, they were designed by God, that the giftedness of those who can and will and want to serve will meet them. That's just how a body works. Look at your own physical body. Right? It's God's design. It's God's design for the human body. It's his design for the spiritual body of Christ. So again, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So we focused on this need for a better understanding, a better exposure to the fact that while God caused this man to be born blind, that his works would be displayed in him, he caused this man to be born blind that the works of God would be displayed in you. I tried to point up so none of you thought I was pointing right exactly at you. <laughs> you and me. That's why we have that text. 
that you and I would be busy enjoying the works of God. What is the primary work of God? It's to believe. It's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. What is the work of God? It's belief. And he rebuked them for their disbelief. Therefore, they were doing works to earn God's favor rather than doing works to show their favor for God, to show their gratitude. And so everything was a burden, right? Everything they did was a burden. Nothing they did was joyous. Everything they did in leadership was to show the rest of the people, look at what we do. You better do more. And like we talked about last week, when it comes to giving, it must not be driven by guilt. It must not be driven by saying, well, look at how much he's doing. I guess I should be doing that much. It's got to be everything in relation to the church of Jesus Christ has to be saturated in grace. It's got to come from an understanding of grace. And therefore, understanding the doctrines of grace is critical for that. When you start rejecting God's grace and superimposing your own works upon the text of Scripture and start taking credit for what God has decreed and taking credit for even what God has accomplished in you, you're not operating by grace. You're operating at the very least by burdensome guilt. And very likely, very possibly, you're operating in an effort to show others what you have done so you can take credit for it. Now, I hope that hit you solid between the eyes, because we all need to hear that at least on occasion. I had a friend ask me years ago, a guy in ministry that I served with, he said, Todd, I wonder how much you and I do is in the flesh. I wonder, because we're gifted, we can speak clearly, people like us, people listen to us, I wonder how much we do not by the Spirit. Man, that was helpful for me to hear that. That was really helpful for me to stop and think about how much I do just because I've been doing it, and guess what else? How much I do because I think it's effective. It's been working, so let's just keep doing it because it works. Why not ask the question, where's my heart? Why not ask, am I dependent upon God's sovereign decree that I would experience the joy of just obeying him and trusting him for the outcome that he's already decreed. How much more restful and joyous is that? See, if you can maintain that mindset, you can keep serving on the hospitality team with joy or doing work with our baptisms or our Lord's table or the building cleaning or evangelism or whatever it is. You no longer say, man, I'm under this heavy burden and I just have to keep doing this stuff. It becomes a joy. Well, from John 9, 8 to 34, we said that we want to believe more firmly and help others believe so that while Jesus gives sight to the blind and the unbeliever remains in the dark, we would be faithful and we would help others be faithful. You see, looking at the reality that Jesus is the one who gives sight to the blind, and yet those who continue to reject him remain in the dark, that is a Mack truck-sized line driven between the true doctrines of the Bible and false doctrines of the Bible. The one who submits himself, subjects himself to what God says about himself is the person whose life becomes effective in the lives of others. 
So we pointed out to you in this text the doubt and distrust in the people. Verse 8 says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, that he is like him. And so already there is a division with those who distrust the reality of what's on display. They knew, the community knew, everybody knew the reality that this guy had been blind for his whole life. What do they immediately try to do? They try to explain it away somehow, even though he now can see. The second thing we pointed out was the disbelief and division in the Pharisees. Verse 16 says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them, not only among the Pharisees, but among the people. And immediately, just like they did in John 5, where the paralytic had been healed, they started accusing Jesus of working on the Sabbath. Let's just draw attention away from the doctrinal reality that we actually saw going on. Let's create a diversion. Let's throw confusion. Years and years ago, when I was in seminary, a dear friend of mine uh, was striving hard to minister to his sister and her husband. And I watched how gracious and patient he was uh, with them. And I asked him one time, does it get difficult for you? Is it hard for you to kind of persevere? And he said, it is because, and I won't say the guy's name, to say his name was John, which it wasn't. It is because John intentionally brings confusion to everything he involves himself in. His constant effort was to create a diversion from what was going on, what was being said, constantly disparaging others, constantly trying to discredit those who were right, so as to dismiss the rightness of what they said. That's the character of the Pharisees, trying to spin a diversion. Let's do everything we can not to deal rationally with anything. Therefore, nothing will get done in that context. The third thing we pointed out to you was the delight and distress in the parents. You can imagine the inner turmoil, the inner conflict that they would have been experiencing. Here is their son who was born blind. They would have been devastated. Can you imagine? Your child's born blind. Your child's born with some clear, permanent disability. What are you going to do? Initially, you don't know. We have dear friends, Kimberly and I, that we got to know in Lancaster, she knew them from childhood. He and I served as leaders in the church there together as a dear soul. And they have a daughter, Bethany, who has Down syndrome. A mutual friend of ours said to me one time, Todd, we should give Bryant a lot of grace. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a child with Down syndrome? And so that really changed the nature of my relationship with Bryant. And I began to think about what their daily lives must be be like. You know, today she's in her 40s, and they still have a small child on their hands, so to speak. Bethany became very, very dear to us. I baptized her. We were convinced that she came to know the Lord, and she loves the gospel. She uh, proclaims it with boldness. Um, maybe not so much grace sometimes, but she endeavors to return to grace when she realizes that she didn't. And this must certainly have been somewhat of the dilemma in the minds of these parents. Our son will never see. He will never behold the beauty of a sunset. 
or of another human in terms of physical appearance. And it's easy, I think, to be critical of them. Some commentators are, and I think maybe there's some reason for that, for sure. But my heart is, as I go through this text, focused upon the immense distress that it must have been for them. And then comes this massive flood of delight, this avalanche of delight that's ruined by the Pharisees. And they showed weakness, let's be honest. But why was that nurtured? Because the spiritual leadership was bankrupt. They were spiritually bankrupt. Low view of God, low view of God's word, high view of their own experience, high view of their own ability to persuade others to believe that they bore heavy burdens, therefore you should bear heavy burdens. Let me just take a parenthetical pastoral moment here and tell you, I do not have the ability to bear heavy burdens. And I won't attempt to persuade you to think that I do. That would be dishonest, and it would only result in your failure. If there is a heavy burden to bear, I bear it with the elders, and we do it together. If there's a heavy burden in my family, I bear it with my wife, and if necessary, I bear it with the elders. And that's what you need. You do not need someone to stand before you and pretend to be some sort of spiritual hero some sort of spiritual giant that somehow bears heavy burdens and ties them up in a way that he can conveniently place them on your head that you then might feel so much pressure and guilt that you've got to measure up. We had a very interesting elders meeting Thursday night. They're always helpful. They're always encouraging. I always leave thinking, God, how kind you have been to bless me with these men. You have no idea... You have no idea of how immeasurably blessed you and I are to serve with the men that lead this church. They are humble. They are careful. They are spirit-filled. And they are committed to the glory of Jesus Christ and to your better good that you and I might be equipped to win the lost but one thing they are not is spiritual giants, and neither am I. And at the point where we might come to the place where we think that somehow any one of us could bear burdens alone, we have lied to you, and we have led you to think that you must do the same. Some of you have very, very difficult lives. Some of you have truly unbearable burdens in your lives. They are diverse within our church. They are very real. As I look around the room, I'm mindful of how easy it is for me to pray for you because I know so many of you so well and I know the difficulties that you experience. But one thing you do not need is for me or the elders of the church to pretend that we somehow do not struggle or that we somehow do not need reminders of the sovereignty of God in his word and the grace of God in his word. The delight and distress that these parents experienced was a very real experience that you and I experience today. You think you're doing well. You think you're coming along. 
Maybe you've started to give a little more consistently and you're thankful that God's enabled you to do that. Or you've attempted to actually begin to develop relationships with others. You've attempted to seek counsel and correction. You've longed for discipleship. You've asked others to help you. You've asked how you can be helpful to others. And then someone sweeps in and criticizes you and rips the rug out from underneath your hope. And that's what's happening with these parents. Were they wrong to say, well, just ask him, he's of age. Yes, they were wrong to do that. But you cannot dismiss the reality of the influence of the Pharisees. And I would strongly urge you, if you are subject to Pharisees or a Pharisee in your life, trust God's sovereignty, trust him in his control of things, and plead with God to show you how best to deal with that with grace so that you would be relieved from that pressure because you do not need that. You don't need that permanently anyway. Maybe you do need that right now. Maybe that's exactly what you need and God has prescribed that for you so that you would recognize that what you ultimately need is to see that in yourself. Sometimes being affected and influenced by Pharisees leads us to the acknowledgement that our delight is being poisoned by distress and we might need to look at self. Someone said to me recently, for years I found myself so quickly able to find things wrong with other people and finally it hit me, I need to be thinking about the things that are wrong with me. Now you might think, well, hello, yeah, but you and I might actually do the same thing. We might be so quick to find problems with other people when maybe what we ought to be doing is saying, okay, yeah, those problems with other people, they're real, but how can that help me better understand myself? And this is what, as far as we know, the parents didn't do. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Is that you? Do you live in fear of some religious oppression in your life or some familial oppression in your life? Choose the delight. Choose the delight that comes from God's clear blessings, knowing that he has decreed that which would require a blessing, that which would require a healing why would God heal anything if nothing needed to be healed? And so God decreed that things would need healing. And God shows his grace in the midst of that. The fourth thing I pointed out to you was the determination and dismissal of the seeing man. This is what happens when God begins to do a work in someone. He can humbly say, I don't understand this, but I see it. I see it. He says, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I see. See, this is a landmark reality in our Bibles. If you're discouraged, if you're struggling with whatever the difficulty is, it may be great, it may be small, but for you it's very real. This is what you ought to be meditating on when you go to sleep at night. I was blind now I see. I don't know. I don't understand the rest. You're pressing me with questions I don't understand. Eventually, he's willing to say, well, maybe he's a prophet. Because it sure seems like he's a prophet. 
Why don't you know that? You know, he could have said to the Pharisees. But it's obvious he did a work in me that had not been done prior to that. I could not create my own eyes. Nobody could, not only with me, but with anyone throughout history. Never has this been done for anyone throughout the history of the world. And he would know, wouldn't he? Because he would have been thinking about this his whole life. He would have been looking into the historical records. He would have known. This was not something that had ever taken place. The uh, Pharisees say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we did not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. This is where the spiritual infant, if he is even that, begins to discredit the religious professionals, the Pharisees. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. No one in history has opened anyone's eyes. But you don't know where he comes from. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And of course, then they dismissed him. He's determined and he's dismissed. And that's what happens when you stay faithful to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? When you remain faithful to Jesus Christ, you will be dismissed by those who are not determined to remain committed to Jesus Christ. That's when you will receive your greatest criticism and ultimate dismissal. As you remain committed to the truth of who he is, you will be cast out. Well, this morning, verses 35 through 41... Please follow along as I read aloud. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Think you'd ever heard those words before? No, because no one could say that to a blind man. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is masterful metaphorical speech. It's masterful play on words. Well, let's look at it. This morning we'll observe three truths in Jesus' conversation with the man to whom he gave physical and spiritual sight so that we will worship Jesus and remain committed to the truth that he and he alone gives sight to the blind. That he and he alone gives sight to the blind. Point number one, I want you to see that Jesus seeks, finds, and saves the outcast. Verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. See, this is the response of a false convert 
the unbeliever who is a disbeliever, not just somebody who kind of casually throughout life is not determined to believe. He is determined to not believe. That's the mindset of the Pharisees. The closer they came to the reality of who Jesus claimed to be, the more willing they became to further harden their hearts and therefore reject him as the Son of Man. The religious professional who has no interest in truth but only in maintaining a high view of himself and ensuring that others would do so as well. This opposition, of course, is to be expected. The Pharisees displayed the same rejection of the truth of Jesus' deity and his divine power when he healed the paralyzed man in chapter 5, verse 16. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Had they been the real thing, they would have rejoiced that this paralyzed man can now walk. But instead, they completely rejected the truth of the greatness of the God-man and said, well, wait a minute, he's working on the Sabbath. So they convicted him, so to speak, for doing that because they had redefined the Sabbath. They had created their own Sabbath criteria. Additional rules in the Mishnah and the Talmud added to the Old Testament law so that no one could be found innocent of violating the law of God. You know from the book of Galatians, our fulfillment of the law is to love our neighbor. That sounds like a little bit of a theological jump, but that's the result of understanding that the fulfillment of the law comes not in us, but in the one who obeyed his father, his active obedience to fully and completely obey all of God's law, that he would serve as a vicarious substitute for those who would trust in him. And he's rejected. This man is rejected by his family, just as Jesus was rejected by his family. Back in uh, verse 20, it says, His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. The right response would have been, leave my son alone. Stay away from my son. I'll talk to you. He doesn't know anything. All he knows is what he said. He was blind and now he sees. You got questions for him, you come to us. They didn't do that. They let him fend for himself. How sad. A man who spent his entire life blind and now his parents are saying, um, talk to him. Why? Fear. Fear from religious oppression. Fear that they too would be outcast. David cried out in Psalm 27 verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. Some of you have experienced this. We've looked at this in Scripture numerous times. We're told that father will be turned against son, mother against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. The moment that a person genuinely comes to know the Lord, the ripples might start small, but they turn into theological tidal waves. The more you trust the Lord for the truth of what he has said, the more the one who doesn't will hate you even in your own home. 
John 7, 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. <laughs> you think it's bizarre that your siblings don't believe in your faith? God himself was rejected by his biological family. Matthew 13, 57, And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. True of him, it's very likely true of you. Mark 3.20, just after Jesus appointed the twelve as his apostles, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And if you read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, you understand that there's truth in that statement. Meaning, if the unbeliever is in his right mind, then the believer is out of his mind. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 displays this reality that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. At the same time, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. And you have to ask the question, well, who's right? The line between believers and unbelievers grows more and more drastic as believers remain faithful and unbelievers remain hard-hearted. If that's not happening in your midst, you should wonder why. You know what I mean by that? If you have family members who are not growing in humility, growing in faithfulness, growing in their willingness to serve the body, and the line between their character and yours is not growing, you should ask for help with that. You should seek assistance from someone to help you understand why it is that I don't bear the gracious boldness to be able to point out these distinctions. But then our text says, and having found him. And having found him. About Jesus and the outcast. The one who's been cast out because he declared the reality. Because he spoke truth. He remained determined to that which was true, and therefore he was dismissed. John 5.13 says, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is where Jesus began to receive cumulative persecution because the man had declared that it was Jesus who had healed him. Jesus went and found the man he had healed. This is what Jesus does. You were not searching for Jesus. You couldn't have. You wouldn't have if you could have. Jesus found the man. Luke 19.8 tells us the story of Zacchaeus. It says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. It's a willingness to make restitution in a way that humanly, if possible, overcomes the sin. This is why we've often said that for the person who has displayed an unrepentant spirit, the person who has remained in his sin, how and when should we be convinced that he's truly repentant? 
at the point where he at least shows the same vigor in his repentance that he did in his unrepentance. Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus said, fourfold I'll give back. Half of my possessions to the poor. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. And then he says this, he makes this massive theological statement, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus was lost. And the proof, listen, the proof that Jesus had sought him out and had saved him was that Zacchaeus was willing to repent of his sin. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He seeks and saves the lost. He does not break the bruised reed. He does not snuff out the smoldering wick because he is a savior of grace. But the concept of a smoldering wick And a bruised reed does not apply to the brazen hard heart who rejects the truth of who he is. It doesn't apply. The person who humbles himself, who shows himself to believe what God has said about himself is the one Jesus saves. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He seeks and saves the lost. The coming weeks will be in John 10. We'll send your study guide out today. You get plenty of time to start working on it. You can't read John 10 and not understand that Jesus saves his sheep. We saw that in Matthew 1. Jesus saves his sheep. The text tells us here, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He asked this question of the man who is now newly, freshly given eyes and he's able to see. Daniel 7, 13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the coming future of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he, the Son of Man, what's that phrase mean? Son of Man speaks of his incarnation. He is the Son of Man. In the New Testament, this phrase is only used of Jesus and mostly by him. It's his favorite phrase for himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. He speaks of himself as the one who would, in fact, love people so much that he would subject himself to the defenseless state as an infant. And in so doing, he became human in every way except without sin. And in so doing, 
he is our substitute. In John 1.49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the Son of Man. There are many sons of men. You're, if you're a man, you're a son of a man. But ultimately, he is the Son of Man. He is the prescribed one. He is the one about whom Scripture said would come and save his people. John 3.14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so he says to this man, freshly given new eyes, if you believe in the Son of Man, then you have eternal life. Luke 12.8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. It's a reference to his willingness to be clothed in flesh for his love of his people. And then 1 Timothy 2.5, it's not the exact phrase, but it's the same concept. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. That ransom was paid. He purchased his church with the blood of God, according to Acts 20, verse 28. He paid the price. Who? The man, the God-man, the Son of Man. So we've looked at the reality that Jesus seeks, finds, and saves the outcast. And I'm not just talking about this outcast. I'm talking about you and me. At the point where God establishes the setting apart process in a believer's life, he doesn't let him go. He keeps him. And he nurtures him unto likeness to his character. You say, why do so many people get so involved for the church for so long and then they depart? Well, the way John says it is that they went out from us because they were not of us. Now, do not apply that to everyone who ever goes to a different church from the anchor, okay? Do not do that. The point is they left the body because they weren't of the body. second thing I want you to see is that the outcast sees, believes, and worships Jesus. Verse 37 says, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 36, he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? This shows the man's eagerness. This shows the man's interest in that which he was not interested in before. He only may have been interested in some sort of legalistic, Judaistic God but not the God of grace. But now he's eager. He has seen the grace of God. And his willingness is percolating. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And so Jesus reveals himself to the man, and the man believes. Verse 38 says, Lord, I believe. And when he believed, he worshiped him. Friends, believers worship Jesus Christ. They worship Jesus Christ. 
everything you do is worship. Everything, every ounce of every thought you've ever expressed is worship. In Romans 12, Paul tells us that we will know the good and acceptable will of God by the experiencing of the renewal of the mind. It's exposure to God's word. The more you eagerly receive the word of God, the more you will be conformed to his image as your mind is renewed in truth. You're rejecting false thoughts and you're embracing right thoughts. Who are the real believers? Those who worship the God of the Bible. This man says, Lord, I believe. Why did he believe? Had he done all the studies? Had he been to seminary? Had he done all the research necessary? No, the Lord granted him belief as Philippians 1 tells us he does. He grants belief. God granted him belief in the moment, and he believed. And what did he do? He worshiped him. He believed, and he worshiped. So point number three. Jesus judges, exposes, and rebukes the disbelieving, self-inflicted, blind the blind who are blind in a self-inflicted way. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Back in John 5, 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so that which man is able to hide from others, God will ultimately expose. The evil of men will be on display. Uh, John MacArthur said it a couple years ago at a shepherd's conference, the iPhone is the most evil thing ever invented. Now, I use an iPhone just so you know. There's a lot of good in technology, but sin loves privacy. And the person who hides his phone, hides his computer from his wife, from his family, from his coworkers, he's hiding sin. I said to a man one time, so what are you hiding? He said, I'm not hiding anything. The reason I hide things is because the way my wife acts when I hide them. I said, hold on. That was a little fast, but I think you just said you don't hide anything. And then you said the reason you hide things is because how your wife responds when she discovers you've been hiding things? That was sort of the end of that conversation. Verse 40 in our text says, Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. So you're blind in one way and not in another. You're spiritually blind and yet you have truth. So they sarcastically, mockingly say to him, are we blind? You're accusing somebody of being blind. Are we blind? It's sarcastic, right? They would say, we're the religious leaders of the day, and you're going to accuse us of being blind? And Jesus says, you're not blind in one way. You are totally blind in another. The reality is you are without excuse. You are without excuse because you, of all people, have been exposed to the Old Testament. You, of all people, have had the greatest access to Scripture, and you reject it. What did they primarily reject of him? His deity and his sovereignty. Read through John 6. Rejecting his deity, 
rejecting his sovereignty. They prove themselves to have rejected truth. And so, yes, they are spiritually blind. But on the other hand, they see at least well enough to have seen the truth and reject it. And so Jesus uses this play on words to expose them. He judges, exposes, and rebukes them. Isaiah 43, verse 8 says, Bring out the people who are blind even though they have eyes, and the deaf even though they have ears. Right? I mean, this is why men who are unregenerate think they are so smart, because they can talk, and they can see physically, and they can read, and they can make deductions, and they make strictly human deductions. And therefore, when they apply those human deductions to spiritual truth, they reject them. Isaiah points to the reality that they're blind. There are those who harden their own hearts and create their own blindness, and Jesus pummels further blindness upon them. In Acts 28, verse 26, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. It's always important in addressing such a drastic and tragic reality to end with hope for those who would actually turn from their hard hearts, turn from their blindness, turn from their deafness. He would, in fact, heal them. 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of the further work of Satan to blind those who subject themselves to their blindness. They're influenced by ungodly influences. They want to enjoy their blindness. They want to reject the truth of God. Satan is called the master of the domain of darkness because God temporarily gives him mastery over those who live in that blind state. John says that Jesus is the light of the world and all those who trust him for the light of who he says he is will in fact be given sight. Matthew 4 refers to him as the great light. We've looked at the matter of the physical blindness of this man, but we've also very plainly seen the spiritual blindness in which he lived his entire life. The joy that you and I share, having been given light, having been given eyes to see, enables us to see that there are those who have not been given eyes to see. And this creates a dilemma. It creates an incredible need for the body of Christ that you collectively would exercise a Matthew 18 loving effort to see those who are in fact brothers restored, but those who are not to be in fact turned over to Satan. The one who is turned over to Satan, that his flesh might be destroyed, that on the day of Jesus Christ he might be saved. It requires a great deal of love and a great deal of courage and a great deal of interdependence with the body of Christ. These are hard truths, and as you remember, the disciples didn't turn from hard truths. They simply said they're hard. They expressed the reality that they need help to understand them. But the false converts turned and walked. They departed from him. They're called disciples, 
There are those who had some seeming adherence to the person of Christ and even to the Word of God, but they departed at the point where the hard truths began to get too hard. And this is what happens. So how should you and I respond? Two things, and we'll finish. Genesis 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to him, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That is a loving, humble understanding of the sovereignty of God over all things. God intended it for good. Those who are evil do their evil with evil intent. God decreed it and intended it for good. And Joseph understood that because he had a high view of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The higher your view of God, the more gracious your view of man, the more mercifully you will be willing to be involved in the salvation of many people. So he says, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's how we respond to the false convert. That's how we respond to the person who rejects the kindness of the Lord and steals and lies and shows his deception repeatedly just as Joseph's brothers did. He did not hold his authority over them. He showed them grace. He showed them mercy. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's about believing what's written in the word. That you would believe and that you would be able to see others come to believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great, great kindness to us. We plead with you this morning that you'd humble our hearts. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge that we were blind. We did not overcome our blindness. The blind are blind. They cannot change their blindness. But Lord, we acknowledge that for some of us, maybe for most of us, there was a time when we believed that we had opened our own eyes. In fact, we probably chose to believe that our eyes were never blind, that we somehow had the ability to choose you. So Father, give us grace, give us mercy, give us the humility of Joseph that we would say what you intended for evil, God intended for good, and therefore God will provide for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.